Well, hey, good morning, Harvest. How we doing? Good. Hey, do me a favor. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 16. And uh, while you're turning there, if you can do two things at once, can uh, we give a round of applause to the men in the room, to our dads on Father's Day? Can we just thank them um, for all they do? One of the things I'm convinced of is that what the world is in desperate need of are more godly men who love the Lord and who lead their families in the way of the Lord. And so thankful to be a part of a church where so many men are doing that. So happy Father's Day to all of you. Hope you guys all get spoiled this afternoon. Uh, so we are in the second week of a series that's called Field Notes, and um, throw up the next slide, please. And uh, if you remember, um, we are, what we're doing is, is we're looking at three different psalms that give us the field notes, or kind of the exact GPS coordinates to how do you get three pretty incredible things. Last week, we were in Psalm 1. We talked about how blessed people live with deep and established roots. And uh, this week, we're looking at the idea of satisfaction, like how do you actually live a life that is is full of satisfaction. We're going to see this in Psalm 16. And um, it's interesting, satisfaction is one of those things that if I were to ask you, like as you come in here this morning, are you a satisfied person? I think if we were honest, most of us would be like, I don't really know. Like maybe some of the time I feel satisfied, a lot of the time I don't feel satisfied. In fact, I'm not sure what you're actually maybe even talking about when you say, am I satisfied? I think we spend so much of our life thirsty that we don't know what it feels like to be refreshed. And um, it's interesting. Um, one of the absolute major themes in all of the Bible is that true satisfaction in life can only flow out of a right relationship with God. That's why Jesus, when he is meeting with the woman at the well, he calls himself the living water. He's meeting with a woman who thought she could find satisfaction in men and in relationships. And he's like, you keep running to the same dry wells that don't provide you what you want. Come to me. I'll be your living water. I, I, I will never, you'll never be thirsty if you're with me. I will satisfy this longing in your heart. So one of my jobs as a pastor is I have to remind us regularly, hey, the things of this world, they're not going to provide the peace, joy, satisfaction that they promise. Don't look to the world for those things. Look to Christ. But, but here's what's funny. I, I think most people, even people who aren't Christians, I think we get this. Like, I don't have to convince you that the things of the world don't bring lasting satisfaction. In fact, we see this all the time. Throw up the next slide. I have uh, two things listed on, on the slide behind me. The first is um, the, the kind of cover of the show, Succession. And um, this show, it's probably three or four years old, and it is by far the most critically acclaimed show on television. It wins all the awards. They're like, it's the best writing. This is the best show on TV. And do you know what this show is all about? It just chronicles a family who are billionaires. Uh, they own a Fortune 500 company. They have private jets. They have houses in New York and Milan. And they have everything in this world you could want. And they are miserable. The siblings, they hate one another. They're always jockeying for position with the dad, but the siblings also hate the dad and are trying to cut him out of the business. And the dad hates everyone. And they are vile and brutal and awful people. And it's like one of the like big attractions to the show. It's like, no matter how bad your day is going, if you watch it, you're like, man, at least I'm not these guys. <laughs> and it's like, we know as a society, like these worldly things, they can't touch our joy and happiness. In fact, a lot of times, the more you get, the more miserable you become. 
we see this. And then the other one, um, this is Tom Brady, and um, he is the best quarterback in NFL history. And listen, I'm just going to lay my cards out on the table. I'm not a Tom Brady fan. And that's because I'm a fan of the Chicago Bears. And if you're a Bears fan, you're not allowed to like good quarterbacks. It's part of the rules. So I don't like Tom Brady. I never cheered for him. But everyone agrees he's the greatest quarterback in NFL history. He's broken all the records. He's won all the championships. There's nothing to prove. Well, he's in his 40s now, which is way older than most people play football. And uh, he finally retired after the season for about 20 minutes. And then he was like, nope, I'm gonna come back and play another year. And it's like, man, isn't that crazy? Like he's won everything. There's nothing more to, to, to gain. There's nothing more to accomplish, but he can't give it up because he doesn't know what does that next thing, what's it gonna be that brings about satisfaction? It's just the reality of who we are that the things of this world will not satisfy. Well, what's cool about Psalm 16 is we're gonna hear about satisfaction from a guy named King David. and. Um, King David, he uh, um, was not a perfect man, but the Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. And uh, so what that means is he was the Tom Brady of figuring out this thing called satisfaction. And he's going to give us the secret, the field notes to living a satisfied life. We're learning from the best today. So do me a favor, follow along as I read Psalm 16. Says this, it says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance Bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. My heart also instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to shield or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the paths of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. All right, church, here's the big idea. It's this. It's that satisfied people live with vertical certainty. Satisfied people live with vertical certainty. When I read this psalm, the thing that sticks out to me more than anything is how confident David is in the Lord. You see it all over his language. This is not a guy who's wondering. This is not a guy who's trying to figure out what's going on. He's not wavering. He is like, I know where life and satisfaction is found and God, it is found in you. He is certain. Listen, I've never met someone in my life who always just lives on the edge and is never certain about anything. Those people are always miserable. Well, I don't really know about this and I don't know what I wanna do and I don't really know what I believe. That never leads you anywhere good. David has certainty, not in himself, but in who God is. And the first thing that satisfied people are certain about is again, they're certain about who God is. Look at verses one and two. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. 
He's saying, God, you're the one who keeps me safe. You are my refuge. You're the thing that I'm hoping for, for strength and safety. And David does something amazing in these two verses. I got it up on the next slide. Um, He uses three different words for God in these two verses. In verse one, he says, oh God. And that was the most popular phrase for the way the Hebrews would call God. And that was El. And that means strong God. So he's saying, God, you who are strong, I take refuge in you. And then he says, um, O Lord, I will say to the Lord, that's the word Yahweh, and that means all-sufficient. It means he's completely self-sustaining. He is separate from his creation. He has everything that he needs. And then the third thing he says is, I will say to the Lord, you are my Lord. And that's the word Adonai. And it's personal. He's saying, you're my God. You're my king. You're my ruler. So he's saying, God, not only are you strong, and you're self-sufficient, but you're mine. I I know you, you're my king. Do you see the confidence David has in the Lord, how well he knows this God? He was certain. So I don't know how many of you guys have seen it, but have you seen the new uh, splash pad in Spring Lake that's kind of right by the park over there? Um, It's been going for a couple weeks. It's really, really nice. It's beautiful. If you have young kids, you should check it out. But um, on Wednesday, I was at the office here in Spring Lake and Mary called me and she's like, hey, I'm taking the boys to the splash pad. If you've got a couple minutes, come sneak out of the office and um, come say hi to them. So I got in my car and drove like the two minutes. I probably could have walked, but I was lazy. So I drove and uh, got to the park and uh, Mary's there. And I go in and give her a, a hug and say hi to her. And the boys don't see me yet because they're playing in the water. And then all of a sudden they turn and they look and they notice that I'm with Mary. And guess what my boys do? They scream, Dad! And then they sprint, and what they do is they chase me around because they think it'd be funny to get me soaking wet because they're soaking wet, and they try to give me hugs. But that's the picture of what David's saying. It's like, my boys, when they saw me, they knew exactly who I was, that I loved them, that I was safe, and they ran towards me. David's saying, God, this is what I do to you because I am certain of who you are. And then that leads to his next phrase. Listen to this. He says, I have no good apart from you. Not only is he certain about who God is, but he's certain about what God is like, that God is the creator of everything that is good. In James 1.17, we're told that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Church, look at me. Do you know that everything good in your life is a gift from God? That God is the creator and designer of goodness. So everything good that you experience, every moment of joy, every feeling of love, every um, good relationship that you have, that flows out of the mind and creativity of God. And in fact, everything evil in this world, everything wrong, everything broken stems from our rejection of the God that is good. Right, this is why people who don't love the Lord and don't know the Lord, they're still capable of doing good and experiencing good because we're all created in God's image. David's like, without you, there is nothing in me or in this world that has any good. He is certain about who God is. Church, can I ask you the question? Are you certain about God? Like, is your mind made up? Are you certain about the reality and the nature and the goodness of the God you claim to come here and worship? We have to be certain. Look at verse three. He says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply their drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Here's the second thing satisfied people are certain about. They're certain about who they belong to. 
Look what David says. He says, the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. And the saints, what he's talking about are other people who love and know and are following God. And he's like, I see these people and I belong to them. They're my brothers and sisters. They're my family. And he says, they're excellent. And I delight in them. Like how weird would it be at church if we like greeted each other and said, saying, hey, what's up? It's like, hey, excellent one. How are you? Right? Well, that's what David's saying. Like, that's how I view them. I love them. My heart is drawn to them. And he says, in those that serve something else, I don't want to associate with those things. I'm not going to partake in them. I want nothing to do with it. Church, look at me. This is so important. Do you know that there's a bond that people united by the Holy Spirit have that the world cannot duplicate and cannot replicate? That the Holy Spirit bonds the hearts of people who are truly his in a way that is special. Did you know that one of the biggest encouragements in my life is the people of Harvest, the people at this church? Like, I, I love you guys, and there's a uniting in our spirit that is really special. Um, an example of how this plays out, so on Monday, uh, my son Bo, he had soccer tryouts for the upcoming fall and spring seasons, and um, I'd never been to a tryout before I was out of town when they had them last year, and uh, so we went to White Pines Middle School on Monday, and I thought this would be just his team, and there would be, you know, 20 or 30 kids there trying out. Well, I was very wrong. They were trying out like 10 different teams, 10 different age groups, and there was like 500 people at White Pines Middle School. So, you know, everyone's kind of a little nervous already because of the nature of tryouts. But then, like, the, the stadium's full. There's people everywhere. And, and it's kind of a nerve-wracking experience. But the cool thing for me was, like, I saw 50 people from Harvest at these soccer tryouts. And, and it's like, man, I, I go there and, and I see Justin and Lindsay Cannon. And it's like, man, they used to be in my small group. And I don't get to see them as much as I used to. But I know that they're walking with the Lord and thriving in their faith. And it's like, man, I get to see them. I get to give them a hug. I get to say hi. And, like, my heart is full. And I see another person, I don't even get to talk to them, but it's like, man, I know that she's going through some real hard struggles and issues in her life, but she's trusting the Lord and walking faithfully and following God. And that's so cool to see. And then I had other parents just come up to Bo and say, hey, what's up, Bo? We go to Harvest and encourage him. You're going to do great. Like there was just a love and bond that I shared with people just at a soccer tryout on a Monday night. Like, that's special. Mary and I often talk about how there's so many people at this church that, like, we wish we could make our days last four times longer so that we could visit with everyone and have people over for dinner and connect with everyone. It's just the size of this church makes it really, really hard, but it's, we just love so many people here. You know, it's funny, last weekend, um, I don't know if you guys know this, but I was um, all by myself last weekend. My folks had taken my girls on a vacation and Mary was in Florida with my boys visiting my grandma and my side of the family. And I couldn't go uh, because I had to preach here um, this past weekend. So I was just home by myself. And what was really cool is, is like my small group, they like stepped up and took care of me. Uh, on Friday night, a couple in our small group was like, hey, Cal, we're going out to the deck. We were going to have a date night, but you should just crash and come hang out with us. I know you're by yourself, like come hang out with us. So I totally third wheeled it and we went to the deck and had, had a great time. And um, then on Sunday, another group in my small group was like, hey, come over to our house for dinner. And I hung out with their kids and we had dinner together. And it's like, man, my small group really loves me and is taking care of me. Or they're terrified that I can't take care of myself without Mary around, right? It's one of the two. They're like, is he going to eat? Is he going to make it? If Mary's not there and they weren't wrong for being worried about that. But um, I had two great meals and a lot of cereal. It was a good week. Um, but it was just really, really cool. It's like, man, I love these people. Listen, do we love those that don't know the Lord? Absolutely. 
Do we pursue relationships with people that don't know Christ? We totally should. But listen, when you don't share the same spirit with someone, it's going to limit the depth of that relationship. It just is. Right? That's why we're told in the New Testament, do not be unequally yoked. Paul warns against marrying someone who's not a believer because if you don't share the same spirit, if you fundamentally don't align on the most important things, it's going to make your marriage really, really difficult. And I've been in ministry long enough that um, I've talked with many people at this church who are saved and are, are married to an unbeliever. No one's ever come to me and been like, dude, that was the best decision in my life. I'm so glad I I made the choice. It's been so easy and it's been awesome. Like, no, it's been really painful and it's been really hard. And I I wish I would have had more wisdom when I was thinking about getting married. Church, can I ask you a question? Are you comfortable in the presence of sin? Or do you find your heart longing more and more for the things of God and the people of God? What are you certain about? Who do you belong to, really? Here's the third thing we see. Satisfied people are certain about what they are running after. Look at verse four. He says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. All right, now this is kind of the meat of this issue of satisfaction. What David is saying here is he's saying, listen, those who run after another God, their sorrows, they're just going to multiply. They're they're not going to get what they're looking for. They're, They're not going to be satisfied. See, these false gods are not going to hold their end of the bargain. David is saying, nothing outside of you, God, will bring joy and satisfaction And here's where we get ourselves in trouble. I think we often settle for a faith that believes in God, but is unwilling to run after him. Like, did you know there's a lot of Christians who they believe in God, but ultimately they're not running after Jesus Christ. He is not the center of their life and the foundation they're building their life on. He's part of their life. They, They do a lot of good things, but they're not truly running after Jesus. And um, here's where this gets tricky. Did you know that we can even be at church right now and we're actually running after things that aren't Jesus? Like, did you know that church provides a lot of cool things that aren't God itself? It's not Jesus Christ. Uh, Throw up the next slide. Like, Like, listen, church, Harvest, it offers really, really good community. We work hard to to place people in small groups and to make sure that if you're part of this church, people are going to know you and love you and care about you. And that's a great thing, but it's not an ultimate thing. It's not Jesus Christ. It's interesting. I was talking with Taylor this week and uh, Taylor, he's our our worship pastor. And um, he also was our youth pastor for about five years. So between us, we have well over a decade uh, of experience in youth ministry. And um, I don't know how much you guys know Taylor, but I think Taylor is like one of the greatest worship leaders in the entire country. I think he's so talented. And what I love about Taylor is, is just as talented he is, he is that wise and godly. So I always love talking to Taylor. And Taylor said something that was just really, really insightful. He said, Cal, the hard part about doing youth ministry is it's almost impossible to tell are kids engaged with church and coming to youth group because their hearts are really captured by Jesus or is their heart just captured by their friend group? And their friend group comes here and their friend group goes to church. And he goes, the problem is, is it looks exactly the same. They all sit in the front row. They all lift their hands in worship. They all go to the events. They all go to camp. And it's like, it's like, you think, man, these people really get it and they really love the Lord. But in fact, all they were doing was chasing their social group of friends. So then when they graduate from high school and their friend group scatters, they have no foundation. And oftentimes they just walk away from the Lord. And it's not an indictment on youth group. It's not an indictment on the church. The problem is, is Jesus never truly captured their heart. So when their social circle changed, everything fell apart. 
Like, are you here today primarily because you love Jesus and you want to grow in your walk with the Lord? Or are there other factors that are leading here that if they went away, you might walk away as well? Right? Some people come to church because of a feeling of peace. And I love this. I talk with people all the time. They're like, man, when I come to harvest, I can just feel the presence of the Lord. There's a feeling of peace. And so often in the week, I'm stressed out and I'm anxious and I'm tired. But when I'm here, it like goes away. And that's awesome. We want you to feel that. We want the presence of the Lord to be in our midst as we worship. And we want you to feel the power of God as his word is faithfully proclaimed. But that feeling, it's fleeting. Please tell me you're not here chasing a moment or chasing a feeling, but you're chasing the creator of that feeling, which is Jesus Christ, the one who loves you and gave his life for you. Sometimes people come to church because they just know something needs to change. And they come because their marriage is in shambles or they've got an addiction issue or they've bottomed out at work and they're like, man, I know it's not working. I know something needs to change. And so what happens is, is a lot of times through our ministry, maybe soul care or small groups, they experience life change and that's a great thing or maybe they don't. But if change is the only thing they're going after, that's not gonna sustain either. Only Jesus Christ will So we need to be diligent to ask our hearts the hard question, what am I actually running to? Am I running towards Jesus? Is my identity actually rooted in him? Is he my hope? Is he my joy? Or am I doing a lot of the right things with weak motivations that will not ultimately satisfy me or sustain me? David gets this. Look at verse five. Look what he says about the Lord. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Do you see how he describes the Lord? He describes it in in eating terms. He's like, you're what I want to devour. You're what I want to eat. You're my portion. You're my cup. You're what I run to for satisfaction. You're the thing that I want. He gets it. Then look at verse 6. He's saying, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. Do you see how satisfied he is? Like one of my favorite lines in all of scripture is verse six. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. You can't say that or hear that without just feeling good. Do me a favor, turn to your neighbor and just say, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. All right, now say it like you believe it, because that was really lame, all right? <laughs> the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Like, does that make you feel good? It feels like 75 and sunny, doesn't it? And David's like, man, you have been good, and you have been faithful, and everything that I want, I've found when I've sought you. This is a word, these are the words of a man who's content, who's satisfied. And here's what David understands. He understands clearly that the world can't provide you any physical certainty. You know, one of the things I love is that when science catches up to the Bible, and uh, in Luke 21, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Jesus promises in Luke, heaven and earth, they're all going to go away. And um, what's interesting is what science is figuring out is that nothing physical in this universe will last. It's all fading away. The sun is burning out. Our universe, our solar system, our galaxy will eventually go dark. They're finding that even matter is just a um, temporary arrangement of energy. There's no physical foundations. There is nothing in this world that will ever stand the test of time. 
You know, another thing that the world can't provide is intellectual certainty. And this always cracks me up. Did you know that it was just a few hundred years ago where the best, most intelligent scientific minds in our world believed that if someone was really, really sick, what you should do is stick them in a bathtub and dump leeches on them and let leeches suck their blood and that's what will make them better? Doesn't that sound gross? It's like, that's a terrible idea. Who, who was the genius that came up with that idea? But in a moment, that was like the leading scientific cutting edge technology. And it just makes me think, do you know that in like 300 years from now, our great, 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 great grandchildren are going to be making fun of us for the stupid things we were certain was true that we were wrong about? We just don't know what it is. Things are always changing. Right? There's no intellectual certainty. There's no way we can say, man, we perfectly see everything right now the way it truly is. That's what every generation has thought. And we mock the generations that came before and we will be mocked by the generations that come after. Then here's the big one. The world can't provide you any emotional certainty. We are incapable of preserving the people and relationships we love the most. And you learn this when you're young. I was talking with our intern uh, this, who's our intern this summer. His name's Aiden. And uh, he's a freshman in Moody. He just finished his freshman year. And he was talking about how weird it was because you've got this close friend group in high school. And he's like, I thought we were going to be best friends forever. But then you go to college and you meet new people and you have new friends and they go to different colleges. And when you come back, it's just not exactly the same. Like it was, things change. Those relationships change. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, you're going to learn that 10 times in the next 20 years. It's always changing, right? I had a conversation with my grandma about five years ago. I was hanging out at her house and she had just found out that a longtime friend of hers had passed away. And she looked at me and she goes, Cal, getting old is really, really sad. She's in her mid eighties now. And she's like, what you do is, is you just have to watch all of the people you loved most in your life get sick and die. Like there's nothing we can do to provide certainty even to the people we love the most. C.S. Lewis says, if I find myself in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. This is what David is echoing. He's saying, in you and in you alone can I find a satisfaction that is eternal and sustains me. Look at verse seven, he says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. The fourth thing we see is that satisfied people are certain about where wisdom is found. Do you see what he's saying here? He's like, listen, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. He, he's saying, you're the one that I look to for wisdom. He says, at night, my heart instructs me. That's what we talked about uh, last week, where he's like, in his law, I meditate day and night. He says, God, you're at my right hand. So my heart is glad and I'm not shaken and I am secure. You know, it's interesting. I, I would love to ask the question. Last week, we looked at uh, blessed people have deep roots, that they root themselves to the counsel of God's word. Can I ask you a question? How's that going for you this week? Was it just in one year, out the other, just doing the same things over and over again? Or are you pursuing the one thing in life that will set your roots secure? David's like, I have. And look what it provides. Again, he, he says it in verse eight. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices and my flesh also dwells secure. And what's crazy to me is, is how much money is spent in our country looking for these exact things? 
Like imagine if I came out with a miracle drug and it promised your heart will always be glad, you won't be shaken, you'll rejoice, and you'll feel secure. You think I could make some money selling that if I, if I could prove that it was a real thing? Absolutely, I would destroy it. And David's like, it's all right here. Everything I want is in you. Look at verse 10. It says this, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One seek corruption. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At my right hand are pleasures forevermore. The last thing satisfied people are certain about is where their future is. And verse 10 is really fascinating. He says this, he says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. In Sheol, there was one part of Sheol that, that was torment or Hades. And one part was Abraham's bosom. And this is where people would go when they died before Jesus rose from the dead. This was their holding place uh, before heaven. And David's saying, you're not going to keep me here. You're not going to abandon me in Sheol when I die, but I'm going to heaven. And then he says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. And this in scripture is what we call a near far messianic prophecy. Because David's talking about himself. He's like, you're not going to leave me to be corrupted. But this is also a direct reference to Jesus Christ. That this is a messianic prophecy saying that when Jesus died, he wouldn't stay dead, but that he would rise from the dead. And it's like, Cal, how do you know this? Well, here's how I know it. Do you know in Acts 2, when Peter preached at Pentecost, the first message talking about the resurrection of Jesus, this was his text, Psalm 16. He used this to say, listen, God kept his promise. So if it's good enough for Peter, it should be good enough for us, huh? But look what he says. This is, this is amazing. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And what the word presence in the Hebrew, what that's translated as is face. So what David's saying is, listen, in your face, there is fullness of joy. And here's why that's significant. Because only one person in the Old Testament ever asked to see the face of God. And it was Moses in Exodus on Mount Sinai. Do you remember what happened? God was like, you can't look at me in the face because it will kill you. Here's what you can do. You can look at my garment as I pass by. So Moses had to hide his face in a rock. The presence of the Lord passed. And he just saw the back of God's garment as he passed by. And he came down from the mountain glowing and freaked out all the Israelites because he had seen the presence of God. So you see what David's saying? He's saying, Moses couldn't see your face, but I will. Because I'm going to be with you in paradise. In your face, there is fullness of joy. I will see you face to face. This is not the end of the story. I will be with you. And church, here's what you need to hear. You know why David was so confident he would see God face to face? Because God had promised that a Messiah was coming that would defeat sin and death. He was believing in the promise. Church, we've seen the promise We've seen the story. We know that Jesus came. We know the life he lived. We know that he rose from the dead and defeated death. How much more certain should we be having seen the Messiah come? David was certain believing in a thing that he had not yet seen. We have seen the testimony of the risen Savior. We should be even more certain. You know, it's funny. So often I meet with people who are skeptical about Christianity or the Bible. And they're like, well, I don't like this about the church or I've been hurt in the past or I struggle with this theology. And oftentimes what I'll do is I'll just ask them one question. I'm like, here's what I want to know. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? 
Like, I'm going to ask you that question today, church. Do you believe, are you certain that Jesus actually rose from the dead? Because here's the thing, if he did, then God's word is true and everything he promised is true. And we can be certain that those who are in Christ will see him face to face. Like if Jesus is alive, he is Lord. It all hinges on this one thing. You have to be certain about it one way or the other. All right, church, so I just wanna close with this. I need to ask you a big question. How would different would our lives look if we were five times more certain about these things? How different would our lives look like if we shared David's certainty? And I've got the things up on the screen, who God is, who we belong to, what we are running after, where wisdom is found, where our future is. Like if we were certain about these things five times more, what would that do to the anxiety and frustration and fear we so often carry in life? How much more hope and peace and satisfaction would we have? It was like, man, I know who God is and I know where I'm going and I know who holds the words of life and I am all in and committed. What would change about you? I want you to wrestle with that this afternoon. And so again, the goal of this series is to be super helpful and super practical. I hope this series is helpful to your hearts. So what I wanna close with is three steps to pursuing genuine satisfaction. Here's the first, get after deep roots, right? Blessed people have deep roots. Anchor yourself to God's word. You can't be certain about where you're going or who God is or where wisdom's found if you're not engaging with God's word. Get after the basics, get after the fundamentals. Treasure God's word. Watch how blessing flows in and out of your life. The second is, is you need to run with the right crew. And you need to run with people like David said, my saints in the lands who are the excellent ones. Do you have people in life who point you to where true satisfaction is found? Do you have people in your life who love the Lord and who hold you accountable and who encourage you and remind you, no, no, God is good and he's sovereign and he's faithful and these things of the world aren't going to satisfy or do you surround yourself with a crew of people who are chasing after the dry wells? Listen, friends who love the Lord and point you to Christ are more valuable than gold or silver. They just are. And then here's the third one and this one's interesting. I'm gonna challenge you to put other things to the test. And if you're here and you're like, man, I don't know if I buy this. And, and I feel like I wanna keep chasing the, the other things. Put whatever that other thing is, is like, what is the thing you tend to want to run after? Is it being liked by others? All right, all right, put people pleasing to the test. Can I ask you the question, what is running after the approval of others? What's that producing in your life? Well, it's producing anxiety and it's producing worry and it's producing compromise. Okay, so, so it's not producing great things in your life. And here's the other question. What's it gonna produce? What's it gonna do for you in 150 years from now? Not a lot, right? It doesn't last. Well, I'm gonna pursue my job or money, all right? What's that producing in your life? Like ask yourself the hard question. And then ask yourself the question, what's that going to do for you in 150 years from now? Listen, I'm gonna quote C.S. Lewis again. If I find in myself desires in which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. We were made with an eternal longing to know and love and walk in relationship with our God. And when we turned aside from that, when sin entered the world, we believed that other things would satisfy, they won't. Put those things to the test and I um, am certain you're not going to find anything that stands up to God 
and his word, which has stood the test of time. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for um, this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you that um, you're honest with us. God, I'm thankful for the words that David says when he says that the, the sorrows of those who run after another God will multiply. God, you've warned us. You've been honest with us. Help us to heed your word. And God, I just want so badly for the lives in this church to be lives that are filled with joy and peace and security, the very things you promised. But God, that will only happen when we turn our eyes to you. I am more and more convinced of that every day. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.